Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you in these nice, new, comfortable chairs. We hope we didn't make them so comfortable that you fall asleep this morning. <clears throat> then we overshot our, our goal if we did that. <clears throat> well, we are in this great letter of James, uh, probably to Jewish Christians, reminding them that uh, our being saved by the grace of God, apart from our performance uh, to the law of God, uh, we continue to live by the law of God. So having been justified from the condemnation that would come from our transgressions against the law, we go back to the law now as believers and see the law of God as our friend because the law of God gives us our way of walking with Him and getting to know Him better and becoming like Him because the law is in its essence an expression of the moral character of God Himself. If you want a sort of written description of what Jesus is like, look at the law of God. That's what He's like. He was the perfect incarnation of the moral law of God. So we love the law of God because we love Jesus Christ and we've been delivered from the wrath of God for our sins against the law of God. And we've seen how important this is because sometimes it's tempting for those of us who know that we've been saved, that we've been delivered from the condemnation of the law, then to become a little sloppy in our obedience. And James is saying, don't become presumptuous with God. And don't lose your gratitude for what he's done for you. Your gratitude is expressed in the way that you conform to his will, expressed in his law. This is James' primary mission. And his letter really goes side by side with Paul's letter to the Galatians or Paul's letter to the Romans in which he is carefully articulating uh, the doctrine of our justification before God through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, apart from the law. Paul's very articulate and very specific about that. This book of James goes right next to that and to say, yes, justification over here, sanctification over here. Justification is completely apart from our performance relative to the law. Sanctification includes our obedience to the law of God. So law has nothing to do, our obedience to the law has nothing to do with our justification, has everything to do with our sanctification. Now having said that, we know from Romans 7 and 8 <coughs> that in our sanctification, if the law is all we have, we're doomed. Because the more we look at the law, the more we're tempted to disobey. That's Paul's frustration that he expresses in Romans 7. The very thing I want to do, I don't do. And the thing I don't want to do, I do. But then Paul says, thanks be to God who delivers us from this body of death. And he goes into his explanation in Romans 8 of the ministry of the Spirit. So we don't look to the law with the power of our natural moral selves to keep the law. No, we look to the Holy Spirit and ask him to fill us every day to enable us to walk by the law. So it's, yes, it involves our will, but it's, we're dependent completely upon the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to keep the law. If we don't look to the Spirit, then we become a bunch of moralists who think that we have innate moral ability to keep that law of God. And that's the height of pride. So we're constantly throwing ourselves in dependence upon the Holy Spirit to empower us to keep the law. So we need both the Spirit of God and the law of God 
in our sanctification. Now, that's where James has so much to teach us. We saw especially in chapter 2 that he's showing us that, that our justification is displayed by our obedience to the law of God. If someone wants to know you're a Christian, it's not a matter of your explaining to them simply that you've trusted in Jesus alone for your salvation. No, it's, it's also a matter of your displaying your justification by the way in which you live according to the law of God. Now, in James chapter 3, we looked at some very important lessons. First of all, in the first part of that chapter, we saw that the law of God affects our tongues and the way that we speak. Wow, God help me. If there's one of my members that's completely out of control, it's my tongue. And so I have to look to the Holy Spirit and look to the law of God. Lord, help me. Get, get a rain on this tongue of mine. And then he goes on in, in James 3, as you saw last week, discussing and showing the difference between the wisdom of this world and the wisdom that's from above. The wisdom from the world divides. The wisdom that is from above unites. It is peaceable. It is gentle. It is kind. So wisdom, we've seen, is not just an intellectual notion. It's also a moral and spiritual notion. In fact, it's primarily a spiritual notion. It's a gift from God. So with wisdom comes the character of God, not just the knowledge of doctrine. So we've seen the, the nature of wisdom. Now, in James 4, what we're going to see is it, it looks when we read it <coughs> as though James has just kind of thrown some things together, kind of like when you're reading Proverbs, you know, uh, Solomon's Proverbs. It looks like, well, he says something about this and then something about that and then something about that. And they seem to be kind of randomly put in the Proverbs. And sometimes when you, when you read James you get the same sort of feeling that it's just a collection of Proverbs. But I think we're going to see in James 4 that James has some topical intentionality here. He's still talking about the wisdom of God. He's still talking about how earthly wisdom, those who think they're clever and think they have wisdom, when it's earthly wisdom, it actually uh, leads people to fights and quarrels. And that this wisdom that is from above leads to a real relational health. And he's going to show us in James 4 the key to this relational health that comes from the wisdom of God. I think, I think you'll see it all connecting up as we read James 4 and discuss it this morning. Look with me then on page 2396, and let's look at James 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? But He gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Okay, let's look first of all at the first verse and a half. And notice that our divisions are caused by selfish passions. Our divisions are caused by selfish passions. If you look back at chapter 3, verse 16, he says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist. Look at that. Jealousy and selfish ambition. There will be disorder in every vile practice. So I'm sure you could see this in the last presidential campaign. Selfishness, a selfish ambition, jealousy, vengeance, all those things. What happens when you have those? Then you end up with the riots you had the day after the election. You end up with, verse 16, all kinds of disorder and every vile practice. So that kind of relationship to other people inspires violence and hatred. So divisions are caused by selfish passions. When you have two people who don't get along, you can be assured that at least one of them is being ruled by this word passions. Now, passion, in one sense, is a neutral word. If you have a passion for Jesus Christ, that's a really good thing. So James is here obviously talking about something that's not a godly passion. In fact, the NASB would simply translate it pleasures. It's your personal pleasures. It's your selfish interests. It's your lust for things that lift you up. It's your lust for things that satisfy your fleshly longings. But obviously they come at the expense of everybody around you. And he's not just talking here about conflicts that come from personality differences or cultural differences or legitimate differences in perspective, but he's talking about those conflicts that come from pursuing your own personal passions. And when you think about it, the conflicts that you have with people at work or with your wife or even with your children, it has to do with your own selfish ambition, your own jealousies, your own vain conceits, your own selfish passions. That's what James is saying. So if we as Christian men are, truly have heavenly wisdom, we have an ability to diagnose what's going on in situations in our lives. 
we have an ability especially to assess ourselves. And the question we always want to ask ourselves in any conflict is what is your contribution to that conflict? Most of the time when we're in a conflict, we're always thinking about what the other person did against us. But the question to be asked, obviously, is what have you contributed? Where have your passions come into play in this conflict? How would this relationship be going if you had restrained your own selfish passions? Would you or would you not have been able to handle the selfish passions of the other person if you yourself had had godly wisdom? That's the question to ask. And so James is pointing us right to the law of God, right to the standard of the Lord Jesus Christ, right to true Christian behavior. Our divisions are caused by selfish passions. And you can see, once again, the divisions in our country. Uh, this week has been an incredible week, has it not? Uh, I just asked Fred Schaefer, I said, how late did you stay up? He said, oh, about 1.30, I couldn't take anymore. I said, well, I stayed up at 2.30. I just, uh, I was just sitting there with my mouth wide open. I couldn't believe what was going on on uh, Tuesday night. And I was interested in what everybody was saying about it because it tells us something about our country. But uh, it was interesting to me to also listen to, to those who uh, had voted for Hillary Clinton to see how they were reacting to this. And so many of them, especially Muslims, African Americans, a lot of Hispanics were feeling very threatened. And they are feeling very threatened. And they feel as though the country has taken a turn against their interests. And uh, what we want to say is, look, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, there is no east or west. There is no black or white. There is no male or female. There's no uh, slave or free. We're all one in Jesus Christ. And uh, those of us who are Christian men want to be able to demonstrate to those around us that especially if we're in the majority culture, that we have every intention of applying Christian wisdom to all the relationships around us personally and socially. And everybody around us ought to be able to sense that uh, maybe they feel threatened in civic society because of the rancor that's been in this election. But when they come into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and into fellowship with us, they should know they're perfectly safe here because there is a governor on our own sinful passions. And that governor is the Lord Jesus Christ and his law upon our hearts. So there's a sense of peace in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't carry on the rancor out there and bring it into the church so that certain groups within the church of Jesus Christ feel threatened. No, we are contrary to the ways of the world. We do not use rancor and sinful passions in order to pursue the things that we want. We're different. And there's no political party in any nation in this world that can ever co-opt Christian character and the Christian agenda. No political party should be, ever be able to co-opt a Christian man because we have heavenly wisdom. It's distinctive. It's safe. It's loving and kind and gentle to all those around. Our divisions, whether in public or in private, are caused by selfish passions. That's what James shows us in verses 1 and 2. Now look at verse 2, uh, the latter half of verse 2 all the way through 5. And we'll learn here that our sinful passions reflect disharmony with God. This is a major point. In the first verse, he's showing us that the conflict around us comes from selfish passions in our hearts. Now he's showing us that those selfish passions come from a 
strained or broken relationship with the deity himself. That those unrestrained selfish passions are the result of not having access or using access to heavenly wisdom that the deity offers us. So our sinful passions reflect a disharmony with God. And then he shows us ways in which this is obvious. Look at verse 2b. We fail to pray. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. How often is it that when we come up with a problem or a conflict, (coughs) we're doing everything in our power to try to make it right for us. We have all kinds of strategies. And after you try those for about a week and keep hitting your head against the wall, you say, I guess I'll just have to pray. The first resort is prayer. And he says, you don't have because you don't ask. you got a problem today. I know, every one of you has a problem today. Everybody has problems. If you're being paid at work, the reason you get those big bucks is because you got problems and you're going to try to solve them. That's what you get paid for, is to solve the problems that are on your plate. Now, can I just ask you something really basic? Would you just take those to the Lord today? Would you just ask Him for wisdom and ask Him for help? This is what Christians do all the time because... We know that real wisdom comes from above, and you have to ask him. He says, ask, and you will receive. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. Duh. Do you believe him or not? That's what Jesus says. In John's gospel in the upper room discourse, and then in 1 John, you get these repeated promises relative to prayer. Let's just look at one of them. In 1 John uh, chapter 5, this is on page 2,437, 2437. 1 John 5.14 says this, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. These, these are the types of promises that are repeated over and over again in the apostles, I mean in the gospels and in the epistles. Take him at his word. Seek his wisdom. Seek his answer to the problems. You're Christian men if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And you have been given through Christ access to the living God. So have a conversation with him and pray. He says, here is the first evidence that your sinful passions are caused by your disharmony with God because you're not talking to him. The conversation has ceased. We fail to pray. Secondly, he says in verse 3, then God doesn't answer. Well, you say, I I thought you just said that if I pray, he would answer. Well, look at this. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. Just spend it on your passions. Lord, help me to find, help this girl to fall for me. Lord, help me win this $1 million contract today. Lord, help my wife to know how much I need sexual relations tonight, the moment I go home. Lord, would you just have her meet me at the door naked? Would you, Lord, would you, I mean, the list goes on and on. It's like a shopping list of your sinful passions. And that's what you go to the Lord with. And he's looking at you saying, son, did you not read anything in my book this morning? Did is there, is there nothing on your heart that has anything to do with my kingdom? It's just your, the kingdom of your selfish, fleshly interests. 
And James says, you know what that does? That cuts off, that cuts off the dialogue. You're being so childish and ridiculous and foolish that you don't have an active, vibrant, fruitful conversation with the Lord. Now, you can look in the Old Testament. I've given you just a couple of references, but there are multiple ones. And find that in certain places, the Lord says he doesn't hear our prayer. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't hear the sound of it. He's God, so he hears anything and everything he wants to hear. What it means is he doesn't answer it. That's what hearing means in the Old Testament. For God to hear our prayers means that he's going to answer them. That's the reason it's such a privilege to have God hear your prayers. It's more than just hearing the sound of what you're saying. It's that he actually responds to your request. That's what it means for him to hear your prayers. And what James is saying is what the Old Testament has consistently taught. Look in the Psalms there. I give you a verse, for example. You can turn to it if you want. And you'll see that there's a threat there that when you turn your back on God, even if you're numbered among his people, and you're being driven by your sinful passions, then your prayer life is not fruitful. He's not going to be engaged in your personal, selfish interests. Uh, now, he has your interest at heart. You don't have to worry about your self-interest. He's got your interest at heart. You're seeking his interest and the interest of his kingdom. So we fail to pray, and then when we do pray, it's just a laundry list of our selfish passions wanting to be granted. Thirdly, he says, and this really gets to be strong language, he says, you adulterous people, in verse 4, we are unfaithful. The, the word there for adulterous people is just adulteresses in the plural. It just calls us a bunch of whores. And he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Do you not know that when you sell out to your sinful passions, and that's all that governs the way you think about politics, or the way you think about your marriage, or the way you think about your child rearing, or the way you think about your business. It's all about you. Forget the, the living wage that the people who work for you need. No, it's all about your bonus. Forget about the, the janitor who's cleaning the toilets for you. No, it, it's about how much you're going to make at the end of the year. And you just, you've just lined up all your selfish passions. You've been, you've been co-opted. As a Christian man, you've been co-opted by the agenda of the world and the same agenda that everybody else has. And he says, you're acting like a bunch of whores. Do you not know that I married you, and when I took you in, I gave you my name, I gave you my, I gave you my estate, I gave you the promise of my protection, that I'm going to be your, your groom, I'm going to take care of you, we're going to live an intimate relationship. And now... You're acting as though I didn't say a word to you. You're acting as though I didn't make any promises to you. You're acting as though you don't believe any of the promises I made. You're acting as though you're not married to me. You think that you're still a single, you're still, still a single person looking for your boyfriend. And you go out there and unite yourself to the world. Don't you understand that when you do that, that you have declared yourself an enemy of God? You can't have both. Jesus taught this in the Sermon on the Mount, and you've already seen James, who's the brother of Jesus, um, a lot of his teaching is just right out of the Sermon on the Mount. And once again, you know that Jesus said, you cannot love God and mammon, because you'll either hate the one and despise the other, or be devoted to one and, and not the other. There's a choice to be made. It's the Lord and his agenda, 
where it's the world and its agenda, and too many men try to have a foot in both canoes, and when you do, of course, you're going to end up splashing the water. And James is saying you're acting like prostitutes who are married and who just continue their prostitution. That's very, very strong language here. Um, we were made to be his bride, and then we go out and shaft him. We're trying to two-time the deity. That's what he's saying you're doing. It's outrageous. And then look what he says uh, in verse 5. D, we deny our regenerate character. Now here, the, uh, the verse says, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Um, there's a lot of controversy in this verse uh, for two reasons. First of all, good luck on finding that verse in the Old Testament. Uh, it's not in there. So what does he mean when he says uh, that the Scripture says? Well, most scholars say what James is doing is he's summarizing and paraphrasing. It's, it's like he's saying the Scripture teaches this, and then he gives us this concept. The second reason for controversy is the interpretation of that concept. It can be written in a number of different ways, and I won't go into them now because I don't think it's, it's worthy of our time this morning. But basically you can see that God has given us His Spirit, and it's inappropriate for us who are filled with His Spirit to be acting in this way. It's contrary to our regenerate nature. And you get this, of course, in 1 Corinthians 6, 11 and 19. In 19, verse 19, Paul says, you're temples of the Holy Spirit. That's what you are by your, by your regenerate nature. You've been made the dwelling place of God. Don't take the presence of God into your fleshly, selfish agenda. You're, you're a temple of God so that you can carry out the mission of God and be on His agenda. And uh, uh, so this is the basic teaching there. And then in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, verse 11, he says, you know, you, you, you were yourselves unclean, but now you've been washed. You've been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you've been transferred from darkness to light. You've been transferred from being under the power of the evil one. Now you're under the power of the grace of the Holy Spirit. So let's act the way that we are. That's what he's saying. So first of all, our divisions are caused by sinful passions. That's where our conflicts come from. And secondly... This sinful passion is the result of our disharmony with God. So now we've been fully diagnosed by James in terms of our conflicts. You can see that it has, the contribution that we're making to the conflict is our own sinful passion. And let me tell you where that came from. It came from a strained or broken relationship with the deity. So the answer is obviously, let's get back with God. How do you do that? Glad you asked. Let's look at verses 6 through 17. The solution to our disharmony with God is humility. There you go. The way that we're going to get the harmony back with God, regain uh, our infilling of His Spirit, regain our infusion of His wisdom into our lives that brings peace, is through humility. Once again, referring to the the presidential campaign, wouldn't it have been wonderful to have two candidates who would just daily display the humility that's appropriate for a Christian? Wouldn't that have been absolutely fantastic if we'd have an American election 
based on two people who are humbly debating issues and debating which agenda would be better for our country. Wouldn't that be delightful? Wouldn't we have a great result if we had had two debaters like that? Well, what about yourself? And let me tell you, what you've been watching for the past year is a mirror reflection of ourselves. We not only put up with this, we actually enjoy it. Why? Because of our own sinful passions. And our whole culture is being taken away with anger. You know, as Jeb Bush said when he dropped out of the primaries, I just don't do anger very well. <laughs> well, maybe that's a function of his personality. Maybe it has something to do with the Lord. But wouldn't it be wonderful if some other people didn't do anger very well either? What about you? Uh, do you find yourself continually grieved over these expressions of pride and anger? Or do you find yourself being taken up into it, Jerry Springer style? Uh, the solution to our disharmony is humility. Now, let's look at James' insightful and incisive analysis of this humility. First of all, he says in verse 6, God gives grace to the humble. Isn't that a wonderful promise? God gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Well, let's look first of all at the phrase, God opposes the proud. That's an awesome statement. The, verse, uh, the uh, word there in Greek is uh, antitosetai, which just means the setting up of oneself in battle array against another person. So here's what James, and James, of course, is just quoting Proverbs chapter 3. He's saying, when you rise up on your haunches and you, you elevate yourself and you make yourself like the man, uh, which is to make yourself God, you, you have invited God to put on his full battle array and to engage you in warfare. I mean, that's an awesome thought. So when you become proud, you, you are trying to displace God. That's the root idea behind pride. That's, that's, what, that's what the devil, the serpent, promised Eve. You'll be like God. So the first sin was a sin of pride. You'll be like God. Eat of this fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. You'll be like God. And so that's what happens when you're being proud, you're trying to be God. And you've just invited God to put on all of his armor and take you on. But on the other hand, when you are humble, God gives his grace to you. It, he says that he is high and holy and dwells in a high and holy place, but also with those who are humble in heart and contrite in spirit in Isaiah 57. So he dwells with the humble. He comes alongside you and empowers you. And now you get that battle array working for you, uh, and you're honoring God in the midst of it. Uh, here's what Matthew Henry says about this verse in his commentary. He says, can there be a greater disgrace than for God to proclaim a man a rebel, an enemy, a traitor to his crown and dignity, and to proceed against him as such? The proud resists God. In his understanding, he resists the truths of God. In his will, he resists the laws of God. 
in his passions, he resists the providence of God. And therefore, no wonder that God sets himself against the proud. Let proud spirits hear this and tremble. God resists them. Who can describe the wretched state of those who make God their enemy? That's a powerful statement from Matthew Henry. But God gives grace to the humble. He'll be with you. He'll be gracious towards you. Secondly, look in verses 7 through 9, and you'll see that humility demands something of us. Being humble is not just passively loving God and singing a hymn and floating down the river. Humility is a very active virtue. You're actively submitting yourself to God. You're actively obeying the Lord. You're actively taking on all the persecution that duly comes upon you because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. There's humility. It's a very active submission. It's warfare, actually. That's humility. Let's see what James says about it. First of all, in verse 7, it begins with submission. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And I mentioned there Ephesians 6. Remember to put on the whole armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. The, the, the shoes of the gospel, the belt of truth, put it all on. Get yourselves armed and then take the sword of the Spirit, the very Word of God, and, and use it to fight against the evil one. So often, you know, we think you're supposed to flee from the devil. No, you flee from temptation. You resist the devil. Look at the language here. You fight him. You'll notice that in Ephesians 6, all the armor we put on is on the front. You don't have any armor on the back, so don't start running. You stand up and you resist with all the armor you have on the front. And you use the sword. You use the word of God and you do battle and then he'll run from you. That's the promise. So humility involves a, a, a huge war and a battle that you're engaged in. We submit to him and this is the way we do it. We resist the devil and we resist the, the allurements of our own flesh and the world. Secondly, we draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There's intimacy, there's allegiance, and there's intimacy. And so we're not just faithful to our commanding officer, we're actually his best friend. We're intimate with him. And I mention here, among other verses we could mention, is in Mark chapter 3. There you have a calling of Jesus, of his disciples to be with him. And that's exactly the first thing he calls them to do is be with him. And having said that, then Mark goes on to say, and then he sends them out to preach the gospel and to heal. But the first thing he calls us to do is to be with him. You can't do the ministry in the world unless you've had the ministry of friendship with Jesus Christ. It's that close, intimate relationship that you've got with him that then relationally empowers you to resist everything else that's trying to take you off course with him. So there's got to be an intimate relationship with him. This is humility. The way you're going to have a humble, uh, an intimate relationship with him is through your own humility. Thirdly, notice in verse 8b, it involves not only allegiance and intimacy, but holiness. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. So here he talks about clean hands, and a pure heart. Sound familiar? Psalm 15, who can ascend the hill of the Lord and who will dwell in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. So in order for us to 
know this humility, to really experience it, for us to be faithful and loyal to the Lord and to know His intimacy, we have to be sanctified. We have to be going through moral changes continually in our lives. What are clean hands? What does it mean to have clean hands? It means to have hands that are not engaged in ripping people off, lying to your customers, hands that are not guilty of withholding the tax and giving to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, clean hands that are not guilty of withholding the tithe and giving to the Lord what belongs to the Lord, clean hands that keep your hands off women who are not your wives, and clean hands that work hard and give generously to the poor and care for them. There's there's clean hands. A man who's using his physical strength to advance the kingdom of God. There's clean hands. What's a pure heart? The word purity here obviously means to be single-minded because look at the opposite. He gives it to you in the verse. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. So the problem with the impure heart is that it's got a foot in two canoes. It's double-minded. It's trying to advance the kingdom of God and also advance my own prestige, my own popularity, my own wealth and riches. And I've got his riches and my riches going on at the same time. Purify your heart, you double-minded, which means get one thing on your mind. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you as well. So you seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. There's a pure heart is aspiring to the things of God. And in that seeking him, you become eminently relevant to your workplace. You become eminently relevant to your wife and children because you're a man of God and therefore living in this world. You're not extracting yourself out of the world. You're not extracting yourself out of your daily problems. No, you're just coming to this world and coming to your daily problems with an entirely different perspective. The perspective of one who is a representative of the deity, who's seeking what he wants you to do in all these circumstances, and then doing in all these circumstances what you believe the Lord wants you to do. And all these things will be given to you as well. You'll have everything that you need. That's the promise. There's holiness. Fourthly, there has to be a sorrow for our sin. The folks in James' time were thinking, having heard the gospel, they were so thrilled that their sins were forgiven apart from any performance of the law. And then they went on to live what we call antinomian lives, lives contrary to the law of God. And they, they were living spiritually lax and morally lax lives. They become really sloppy in their moral lives. And he simply says to them, you're... you're laughing about things that you ought to be grieving over. You're you're enjoying things that ought to tear your heart out because you love the Lord and the things that are going on are contrary to Him. And he said, you know, of course the Bible teaches us there is a place for laughter and a place for joy. Obviously, we know where we're going. Of course, there's this deep, profound joy and inner laughter that, that sustains us every day. But here he's obviously specifically talking about the things of the prideful man that he laughs and just, you know, mucks it up with the worldly agenda. And here James is saying, be wretched and mourn and weep. Learn how to weep. Learn how to be mournful. Learn how to, you know, so many people read the book of Lamentations, for example, and think it has nothing to do with the Christian life. 
That's because we haven't listened to, to James chapter 4, verse 9 in how to be sorry for our sin. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Let those days come. I've mentioned here Joel chapter 2 in a period when Israel was being very divisive and their leaders were very sinful. And Joel preaches to them and says, rend your hearts, not your garments. In other words, let your display of mourning not just be an outer display. Let your very heart be grieved and you repent and return to the Lord. So in our experience, spiritual experience, if we're drawing near to the Lord, we have this deep capacity to take on much lamentation and much sorrow. And I have to say I have it in our own day, what's been going on in our own country. It leads me to great sorrow to see people so upset, so untrusting of their political leaders, so divisive and so polarized. Uh, it just grieves me that so much pride and worldly agenda has been promoted and brought this about. So much abandonment of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in our culture. So he says, humility gives us the ability to mourn over our sin. And there are several reasons why we should be humble. First of all, we're creatures. Secondly, we're sinful creatures. And thirdly, we're redeemed sinful creatures. All those things lead us to humility. Now, notice C. You know, first of all, we noticed about humility that God gives grace to the humble. Secondly, humility demands obedience. But thirdly, humility leads us to exaltation. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And Peter goes on to say, he will exalt you in due time. You have to wait. Wait upon the Lord. Believe his promises. Humble yourselves now. The exaltation comes later. Look, you're made for exaltation. That part you got right. You're made to be great. You're correct on that. Here's where we're wrong. is that you are made to be great now in this world. This is not the place where you're made to be great. It's the new heavens and the new earth where you're going to be made great. You're going to look just like Jesus Christ. You're going to reign with him. But now in this broken world, which is not for us to own, because you can't. You're dying. You're going to be out of here. And this world is condemned. So we don't build our kingdom here. We're building a heavenly kingdom, or rather God's building it through us. And we have to wait for the day of our exaltation. So humble yourself here. He'll exalt you in due time. Now D, notice in the last section, and we'll take our last 10 minutes to look at this. The lack of humility leads to great sin. So James is going to show us. You see how he's been addressing this now? He says your divisions come from your selfish passions. Your selfish passions come from your disharmony with the living God. The solution to that disharmony is to humble yourselves before the Lord and let Him exalt you in his, on His timetable, not on your timetable, to exalt you in the way He wants to do it instead of exalting yourself in the way you want to do it. And so you're seeing that your intimate relationship with God is rooted deeply in your humility before Him. Now James is going to give us a couple of illustrations of how your lack of humility and my lack of humility lead to great evils around us. First of all, the lack of humility leads to defamation. Defamation. Now, 
he, he, you can see in verse 11, he says, do not speak evil against one another. Speak evil is, is the word katalaleta, which just means to speak down. So you're speaking down about people, which means you're trying to put them down. Now, in, if I understand the civil law, and you lawyers could correct me, but I think for anyone to be convicted of defamation of character in a law court, it would have to be proven that you were saying lies about the person. And if I understood this recent case with Rolling Stone Magazine and University of Virginia, the burden of proof was on the complainants to show that Rolling Stone Magazine not only knew that they were telling a lie, but they did it intentionally to damage the other party. So in a civil uh, in civil law, defamation, if I understand it correctly, uh, entails telling an intentional lie intentionally to harm somebody. That's defamation of character. Biblical defamation of character has a much lower standard. To defame someone in the church is simply to say something evil about them, even if it's true. Now, there are times, obviously, when you have to confront me, I may have to confront you over something evil in your life. There are times, even in dealing with our children, when we as parents have to discuss some evil character that's coming out in our children. So there are, certain, there are obviously qualifications here. When we're seeking to help somebody, the necessary discussions that have to take place, he's not speaking against that. What he's speaking against is that delightful little morsel that you've got in your mouth you know now some, some little piece of gossip, and isn't it fun to talk about the other party? There's biblical defamation of character, even if it's true. You're passing gossip, even if it's true, about another party. That's the standard here, speaking evil, speaking down, putting someone down, whether it's true or false. Of course, it's worse if it's false, but even if it's true. So here he's saying, when there's a lack of humility on your part, you and I are much more inclined to put somebody down. And as a matter of fact, when you do put them down, you can just say to yourself, I'm a proud man in that instance. That's what he's saying. This lack of humility, you can see how it affects relationships. And the wisdom, to go back to James 3 last week, the wisdom that comes from above is what restrains us. The wisdom that comes from above is what enables us to build loving, healthy relationships with everybody around us to the best of our ability. So defamation. And he gives several reasons why this defamation is destructive. First of all, verse 11a, it's unbrotherly. Would you notice how many times he uses the word brother here? Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother. You think he's stressing something? We're brothers. And so it's very unbrotherly, it's very unfamily-like, it's very unloving for you to put down one of your own brothers instead of trying to help him. It's amazing what brothers, I've noticed, will say about each other on social media. I mean, I don't look at the blogs, but people will sometimes send me stuff, and, and I really appreciate it because it keeps me up to date. I, you know, I don't know much of what's going on out there unless you tell me, but... 
I'm, I read some of this stuff, I'm just amazed at what one brother will say about another brother on a blog. It's almost as though blogs are immoral. You can say whatever you want to say on a blog. And it's especially bad when there are no names assigned to the, no authors of the blogs listed. I would avoid those blogs. They're destructive. They inspire proud, divisive behavior that's contrary to our relationship with God. It's unbrotherly. Notice, secondly, 11b, it's unlawful. When you speak against a brother, you are speaking against the law of God. This brother has the name of Christ on him. And Jesus has ordered us to love his family. So when we speak against a brother, we're speaking against the law of God. When we judge another brother, we are judging the law of God. That's what James is saying. This is high treason to defame someone. It comes from pride. And then thirdly, notice in verse 12, it's ungodly. Don't you know that what you're doing when you judge the law of God, you're judging God himself. For there's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge? Who do you think you are? This is the reason Jesus says in Matthew 7 verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. Now, obviously, we know from the Scriptures that we must judge our own behavior and sometimes we must judge each other's behavior because good families do that. We discern and evaluate each other's behavior and we intervene on each other, we help each other, we encourage, exhort, and sometimes rebuke each other. But that's in order to help each other. But this sort of judgment of someone that just, just to censure them for my own sinful pleasure because when I'm putting him down, it feels like I'm exalting myself, which I am trying to do in this world then I am displacing God because he is the only judge. And for me to act like a judge is to act like God. That's the big complaint here. And here is James's point, that when you don't seek the wisdom of God, you are desperately left to yourself and this is what you're going to do. Because this is what the sinful passions do. They do defame one another. But you've come into the family of God. You're different. Uh, Alec Motier, who wrote a Uh, who has written a great commentary on James, he said this about this verse. He says, Defamation is forbidden not as a breach of truth, nor even as a breach of love, but as a breach of humility. If we are really low before God, we have no altitude left from which to talk down to anyone. You get his point? If you've been brought low before the Lord, you're not up here speaking down on anybody. You're down here. You're speaking up, not down to people because you put yourself low before the Lord. So the way you see yourself in relationship with your brothers is a reflection of the way you see yourself in relationship with God. Those two are inextricably connected. That's what he's saying. Now, uh, Secondly, let's look at this second problem that he raises. We've got three or four minutes here. He says, when there's a lack of humility, then also comes presumption. Not just defamation of brothers, but you are going to tend to be presumptuous when there's a lack of humility. And the address here is like he's addressing a Christian businessman. So if you happen to be a Christian businessman, this is for you, buddy. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town, and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. He's talking about a Christian businessman. You make your plans. You're going to go to this town, that country. You're going to trade. You're going to make, make some money. You're going to make a deal. And he says, 
Yeah, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. First of all, you don't know. We don't know, verse 14a. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, says Moses in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. You don't know about tomorrow. You don't know if you're going to even live tomorrow. And so we act as though we have control over time and space. We act as though we, we have all information. We don't. We're ignorant. Secondly, we're not going to last, verse 14b. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You know, Jesus talks about the rich fool who builds his barns to store more goods. He says, don't you know tomorrow's barns will be gone? You have no control over your life. You're collecting stuff. Don't you realize it's all going to go and you are too? You have no control over that. And when you start building your massive kingdom here and trying to control everything, you're acting as though you're God. It's pride. And he says, thirdly, verse 15, we aren't the Lord. You, you know the, the poem that we are the masters of our fate and the captains of our souls. And that's the way we act sometimes. It's a huge problem of pride that we think that we are the captain of our souls, that we're the masters of our fate. And you get it told you all the time. A Christian man says, no, I'm not. The Lord is the captain of my soul and the master of my destiny. Fourthly, James says, we're arrogant. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Look at this. It's like he's saying, let me tell you how bad boasting is. You boast in your boasting. <laughs> you can boast about anything. You boast in the fact that you're boasting. I'm a confident man. I'm, I'm a strong man. I'm proud of myself. Be proud of yourself. We're proud that we're proud of ourselves. It's unbelievable. He says, do you not see this circle of idiocy in which you've gotten yourselves? You who are creatures, sinful creatures, and redeemed sinful creatures, you've gotten yourself into this whirlpool of idiocy and foolishness. And you not only tell yourselves that stupid language, you give it to other people and tell kids that they need to be proud of being proud of themselves. And then he says, lastly, don't you know we're all without excuse? Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him and his sin. So he's saying, he's saying, brothers, don't, don't make excuses for yourself. Let's all take it to heart. And I have to say this morning, I know what's right and wrong. I understand what James is saying. And for me to be talking down to somebody or uh, for me to make all my plans as though I control tomorrow, it's just rank sin and pride. And it comes as a result of not humbling myself daily and moment by moment before the living God. James is pleading with us as his brothers, and he's the brother of Jesus, and we're the brothers of Jesus. And he's pleading with us as brothers, brothers, draw near to God, and he will change the way that you relate to the world. And he will change the way you relate to time and space. And you'll be his man. And he will provide for you all that you need for life and godliness. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your amazing word. We thank you for your servant James and for his teaching to us by your word this morning. And we pray that you'll help us because every one of us by nature so easily understand pride and so easily do it 
We pray that you'll help us today just to look to you and to be today what we are before you, nothing more and nothing less, and to enjoy your fellowship today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.